and welcome to another episode of Untraditionally Traditional, a podcast with me, Brittany Duncan, a millennial homemaker. Join me each week as I share all the things I've learned that make keeping your home, garden, and life running smoothly all while working. If you're enjoying the podcast, please be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcasting app so you get the episodes downloaded straight to you every Monday. Now, on to today's episode. Hello, and welcome back to Untraditionally Traditional, a Millennial Homemaker. I am your host, Brittany Duncan, and today I'm joined by not one, not two, but three very special guests. Anyone who knows me, or if you've listened to this podcast for long, you know that I'm passionate about cooking food, and this year I have become even more passionate about where my food comes from, what's in it, how it's grown or raised, and how the animals I put on our table live out their days before they make it into our kitchen. I warn you that the more you start to explore where your food comes from and how it's produced, the deeper you continue to dive. For me, it's been the rabbit hole of all rabbit holes, but luckily when you know better, you do better. So today I bring a conversation to you with three guests who are helping to better the way we think about, grow, raise, and get food to our tables. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Hello. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Um, so we'll put some names to those voices and educate the listeners a little bit about each of you and your farms. So I'll have you introduce you, your farm, and if you also let uh, the listeners know where your farm's located and and how long you've been there and farming. I know for some of you, the time that you've been at your farm versus the time that you've been farming are different. Well, my name is Elizabeth McKinney, and um, my husband and I started Windy Sage Farms in Ontario, Oregon, five years ago. We both were born and raised on small farms where we basically just homesteaded, used, you know, the opportunity as our families grew to learn and know about where our food comes from. But we started farming in 2018. So um, we both kind of took a step away and you know, got married, grew up, all those things that you do. And now 23 years later, <laughs> uh, started our own farm. So it's been pretty cool. Nice. That's awesome. All right. I'll go next. Uh, my name is Valerie Tim. My husband, Alex, started Vista Farms three years ago. We're located 20 minutes south of Boise, Idaho. And we really just decided that we wanted to take a more active role in our own food production. And so we just dove in with both feet. Not only are we learning the ropes as first generation farmers, we decided to make it even more difficult on ourselves by farming dry land in the high desert. So that presents a lot of really unique challenges. Uh, We grow lavender, we raise Angus beef, and we're expanding on our pork and egg production. Y'all have heard me talk about the lavender. It's awesome. <laughs> and the beef. <laughs> yes. And Wilder? Yeah, my name is Wilder Jones. I'm located in Glensferry, Idaho, on the Snake River. And I grew up on my father's highly diverse and relatively large uh, certified organic farm. That's King's Crown Organic Farm. And I still work for him to this day. And I came back to the farm in 2016 because I was uh, just a little fed up with school and uh, had been just diving deep and scouring the internet for all things permaculture and biodynamics. And I just was working at a food co-op in Bozeman and I had just known that I cared about my food um, and it was becoming more and more pressing and, and pertinent every day. 
And as I was at a permaculture design course, I was like, man, I need to get some land. And <laughs> I just had to take a look around and realize that if I went home uh, to, to Southern Idaho, that I could have all of the creative authority to pursue alternative ways of living and, and alternative ways of growing food. And my father, who's already a contrarian, uh, doesn't take any convincing. And in 22, last year, I started a raw milk micro dairy known as Wild Spaces Farm here on the portion of the farm that I live on. And that's a grass fed, entirely grass based micro dairy serving raw dairy products here in Southern Idaho, along with a little uh, pastured eggs now. Love it. Um, can you explain for the listeners that might not know what micro dairy is versus um, non micro dairy? Yeah, I guess it's just not macro. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, everything's micro now compared to the to the souped up industrial scale of, of dairying. So I've talked to a lot of old timers that are quick to remind me that what I'm doing is not novel, and it's true. Every uh, every dairy used to be small in nature, and there was many of them. And so I'm in the like 10 cows is my herd base. I currently milk five. I'd probably double the herd base, but only ever want to milk 10 at a time. And certainly 40 cows is not big if we're talking about the, the dairies that are 1,000 to 10,000 cows. So there's exactly. a lot of tiers, um, but I guess us micro dairy and people are talking double to single digits. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And uh, it's neat to look at that you're, you know, almost not going backwards, but I'm reading this book right now called The Unsettlers. And it's basically about like, you know, kind of reversing what you're doing. And it seems like that's what you're like, what you're doing. And when they say like, well, that's not a new concept, but it's uh, contrary to how modern farming is done and how most dairy is produced. And Elizabeth, I'm curious from, you know, your time that you spent away from farming and going back, did you find that how you had been, you know, raised as what farming is and how you operate are different or are they kind of along the same line? Oh, absolutely. Um, it was actually quite eye-opening to come back to that lifestyle um, after being in the corporate world and, and I traveled and I was, you know, it was a completely different world for me. Out of high school, married, got in the corporate world and then bought our farm in 2018 and started, you know, diving back into that. It was incredible how much had, it was almost like people were trying too hard. It was almost like I noticed that um, things were being changed unnecessarily. You know, there was things that were being done just like, you know, uh, while they're talking about permaculture, like, that didn't have a name to it necessarily when I was a kid growing up, but that's what we did. That's just what everybody did, you know? Um, and so the traditional ways of farming are coming back and, and what was comical to a degree, and I don't mean to sound disrespectful in any way, but what, what was comical to a degree to me was that it was now popular. Now it was a fad. Now it was something people were doing because it was cool. It was, you know, um, whereas when I was a kid growing up, that's just what you did. That's just how you farmed. Um, and so I think to a degree, it's been, um, a little bit eye-opening, but then it was also a bit of a 
learning curve for me because there was names to things now, <laughs> whereas before it was just, hey, that's what we always did. Somebody would say a fancy name to something and I'd be like, oh, you mean you know, grazing, like, yeah. <laughs> we didn't have a, you know, it wasn't strip grazing or rotational grazing or anything. It was just grazing. Like, that's just what you did. So of course there's things to learn. Um, but yeah, it's, it was an interesting comeback for sure. There was a lot of things that were similar yet different. Yeah. And I'm sure that's the the thing, you know, I, I think about it a lot. Like, when do you call yourself a farmer? Because there is, there's the, the hobby farm or, you know, you have backyard chickens or, you know, you're raising for just your family or you're selling it, or do you need to be working doing that full time and have employees? Like what is the, you know, standard and there, there isn't like, there's so many different ways of doing it now, which is, um, wonderful. And so it kind of brings me into the next area that I wanted to talk about, which is each of your farms are different in how uh, they operate and the kind of farming that you do. And I know that there's a lot of misconceptions that come with it, whether it's pasteurized dairy versus regular dairy, cows are bad for the environment, homesteading must be your full-time job in order to be making it work. And I'm curious um, what each of you finds to be the biggest myth or misconception that you've found uh, through your farm or through getting into farming, like something you thought was different? Well, I just have to say that it is really refreshing to hear Wilder say micro farm and kind of hear that there's a comparison there to more of the big industrial commercial agriculture because I felt feel a lot of the times like a first generation farmer and a new farm starting out only three years into this that I don't even know if I deserve to say the word farm sometimes just because we're small and it really brings me back to well that's how it always was it wasn't these large um just more industrial kind of ways of doing things and I always think about that kind of Amazon Prime mentality that we live with in society today that instant gratification that um, you can just click the button and add it to your cart and it shows up at your door. There's a lot of convenience to that and I think it's great in a lot of ways but the price we pay is that there's no connection to your food or appreciation for how it got there. And so moving from someone as that was a consumer to now trying to get into being a producer, I've really been able to see the difference and appreciate how much work goes into getting that food to your plate. I think we lose that in our food supply chains today, that direct connection to our food and, and what it takes to raise it. Yeah, I agree with that, uh, Valerie. The one of the biggest misconceptions that we faced when we first uh, started our farm and uh, it was it took me a while to figure out how to even answer this question or to respond when people would say this um, because you know what do you see when you drive anywhere this area you see lots of row crop you see lots of wheat and corn and potatoes and um, sugar beets. And so when we said, oh, you know, we have a farm, Windy Sage Farms, or we'd hand somebody our business card or something, and they'd say, well, what do you grow? And in their mind, they're thinking large scale. Um, and then several times people would say, um, well, that's not a farm. And I'm thinking, well, what is a farm to you? You know, because something switched at one point, something switched in people's minds 
that a farm is large row crop style agriculture. And then if you said, well, you had animals, they said, well, then that's a ranch. And I'd say, no, that's not a ranch. And I actually looked it up because I was very curious that it was based on like how many acres you had and what type of animals you raised considered a ranch versus a farm. And of course, you know, who really cares about those kind of details. But to me, it was an interesting fact that every time we said, you know, Windy Sage Farms, they'd say, oh, what do you grow? Where are you? You know, what's your row crops? What are you putting in this year? And we're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, so, um, but just uh, that misconception was kind of interesting. I think that because small farms and small farm to table type of farms have become more popular, even over the last five years, that question doesn't get asked nearly as often, which is quite interesting to me. But it was a weird misconception that I never would have thought would have been an issue when I started introducing our farm to people. Yeah, which is so interesting, because I imagine for those single crop farmers, you know, you're not you're not feeding your family from your farm off of only potatoes. So if you don't have a dairy cow or poultry eggs, you know, produce outside of that, you know, then you either rely on some kind of trade system or you're also being a consumer to other farms. And so it is an interesting concept of whether you're like a self-sustaining farm or you're producing for other people or a combination. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, again, not to sound disrespectful to anybody who thought that or said that, but, you know, that was the conversation that I would have with them was, okay, you know, I appreciate that you grow potatoes. We have a little bit wider spread because we're smaller scale, so we can, and this is what we offer. And, you know, it was, it was a very, um, it was, like I said, it was an interesting conversation I had with several large big time farmers locally here. Cause we did actually a booth at our local fair the first year that we opened our farm. And so our booth of course was buzzing with all these farmers because they thought we were like, you know, the new big farm in town. And I'm like, no, <laughs> we're not <laughs> like, you know, uh, we, you know, I explained to him our acreage and, you know, we have like 13 acres of pasture, but then the rest is dry land. We have 54 acres total. And so you know, it's just sagebrush and they're like, well, what do you grow? And I'm like, grass, <laughs> sage, more <And> sage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to yeah. Idaho and Oregon. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, there's a lot of misconceptions all the time that I'm trying to, to break down and, and reframe. Um, and I can, I can go over so many, uh, my, the micro dairy itself is a great, like leading edge. I mean, everything we do from not pasteurizing the milk to milking once a day, only being on grass, not feeding grain, like all I've ran into so many people, ex dairymen, people that milk cows when they were kids, you had a milk cow with the family, you know, just so many things that I'm saying like, no, I don't do it like that. And mm -hmm. no, I don't want to ever do it like that, you know? And, I don't want to milk cows in the winter. I only want to do it when the grass is green. And so just kind of constantly running into all of the things that I do with my dairy are, are contrary to, to the, uh, to what we've learned. And, um, for me, it's like, I'm, I mean, and maybe I'm sure Valerie and Elizabeth are both in staunch industrial farming areas, but it's like, I'm, I'm trying to break down even how I dress, you know, like I wear shorts, I'm comfortable farm days don't have to start at 5 a.m. Farm days don't have to end at 9 p.m. 
you know like there's just all this stuff that's like you can i'm trying to break it all down you know to figure out what's what is a farm like we've all asked ourselves this question um and even in this interview right now as we try to define it it's not worth defining um i'd say odds are you grow more food than you can eat and uh and that makes you a farm even if you're in an urban setting and so um yeah i'm always interested in in breaking down misconceptions and i think the bigger ones that i deal with are like my own uh my own thought process about like how to integrate my father's legacy as he finishes his farming career and and how do i like i can't do what he did there's no way i can it's going to change um and i can never be as good as he was at some of the things that he does and so i, I have to figure out how to be a generational farmer and luckily we don't owe, owe anything to the bank but um there'll be little things like that that have destroyed other generational farms uh many times over and so i have to figure out that and so that's a big one for me more than whether or not i decide to wear pants or shorts <laughs> yeah it's it's a great point because no matter what scale you're at and i think um we've gotten so far away from well, I think society in general really appreciating our farmers because of that instant gratification. You know, we go to Winco or Trader Joe's, or um, if you live in a major city, you know, you're you're getting it delivered to your doorstep. You don't even have to look at the ingredient pack, like the ingredients to decide whether or not you want to purchase it, where it came from, that kind of thing. And so like with those decisions, we've gotten so far away of thinking where our food comes from that yeah, we don't think about the the decisions that you all make to decide yeah whether you're only going to great like milk your cattle in the summer or your milk house in the summer and what that means for the costs that you charge for your milk you know you're still feeding them all year round and storing them even though you're not selling the milk you know during the winter months or um, you know, for Valerie, like that you you need a meat processor and packaging, and that's a whole other element of it. And so there's all these different things that as the general consumer, we don't think about. And I think another huge thing, or at least that I have found, is that it's more expensive to buy uh, locally or that good quality of food. And so um, but it's worth it once you start figuring out what it means. Why is it so much more expensive? You know, ground beef shouldn't be two ninety nine or three ninety nine a pound. Um, you know, your milk shouldn't be a dollar sixty seven for a gallon or whatever it is sometimes. Um, and uh, I, I think more and more as we start breaking down those misconceptions and people start realizing what it means and and kind of a red flag going up when they do see those prices, maybe you know, that's, that's the goal so that not anybody can be a farmer, but that more people, you know, you don't have to be that full-time wake up at 5am in your overalls to, to be a little more local and sustainable. There's like that age old saying, uh, you know, if it's fast and cheap, it won't be good. If it's cheap and good, it won't be fast. And if it's fast and good, it won't be cheap. And I think all those things are, you know, exactly what pertains to farming. And uh, this whole episode actually was inspired by a conversation I had had with Valerie after, you know, she was posting on her Instagram about their beef shares and was saying like, we don't uh, have beef all the time. And we don't usually sell just a pound at a time because we're a farm 
not a factory and it isn't that instant gratification that that you get yeah can I touch on something real quick there yeah on the on the uh conversation of value you know when eggs went crazy high in the grocery store I was thrilled I was thrilled because it finally put us in a place where people could start to understand our pricing with our eggs we have been at six dollars a dozen since we opened our doors and 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 that actually you know back at the in the beginning when we started offering eggs which we didn't start offering eggs right away because obviously we had infrastructure we had to grow our own chicks and all of that but see people don't bring that into consideration especially if they're going for high production egg layers things like that and being a smaller farm and being um, wanting to do more heritage breeds and things like that I finally did the math and I did the math early on but I did the math again this last year when when our feed prices like quadrupled in in, in price and um, at six dollars a dozen with our cartons our labels our time which you pretty much can't put a price tag on our feed um, because we do free range our birds however during certain times of the year you have to feed your chickens you can't not feed your chickens the chickens themselves and how long it takes to get them to the point where they're laying eggs we were making 13 cents a dozen after selling them for six dollars a dozen so you know, and, and trying to put that into perspective for our buyers. And I did actually have to have that conversation at one point um, because one of our local grocery stores, a little organic market here in Ontario wanted to carry our eggs. And I was thrilled for that opportunity. But when I started putting out the price for them, um, you know, they, they wanted to have the price at $6 a dozen for their customers. And I said, well, then in that case, you wouldn't be making anything because you're going to buy them from us at that price. And so, mm-hmm. you know, there was just a time frame, and as the eggs was a good example where I think people finally started to understand to a degree what it actually cost a farmer. And, you know, at, especially at a smaller scale, we don't have hundreds of chickens. You know, right now we have about 67 layers um, and that does us for what we need. But um, there's a lot of these factory farms that obviously they can pump out eggs and do much better than us, but you're getting what you pay for. And it's definitely not a quality egg. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just, I mean, like the, you know, animal, human, animal uh, care on that side is very, very different. And yeah, I I had to laugh at the the same thing when egg prices um, went up, because we now have six chickens, they're eight weeks old. And um, I have, I, I knew it before we got it. Like you, you get chickens because you want chickens. Do not get them because you want cheap eggs, because you're going to spend way more on those chickens, especially if you're, you know, doing the, the urban chicken thing. Like they have a right. cute coop. We bought the paint to paint it. And like, you know, I'm starting to do the math and I'm like, man, these chickens are getting expensive. And so, um, yeah, pay, pay the price for the, the eggs that are, you know, raised in humane, uh, ways with happy chickens and, um, you can see Elizabeth's chickens and they're very, very happy. Um, I see them online all the time. <laughs> yes. Uh, so something I love about all your operations is that they're educational, like whether it's through your social media platforms or your websites, classes, or conversations at the farmer's market, you know, farm visits, that kind of thing. All of you have been 
educators on your practices. And I know, Elizabeth, that you especially have made education a large part of what you offer to the community. So can you tell the audience a little bit more about the kind of things you teach and why you made the decision to start offering homesteading classes? Absolutely. You know, um, we, first of all, we were wanting to, um, again, just kind of break some misconceptions on backyard farming and small farms. You know, that, that phrase hobby farm became a very common, commonly used term. And in what most people, I think, decided that the word hobby farm meant that you had some animals, but they were all pets and you were never planning on raising them to produce food for you. Maybe your chickens did. So you had a couple eggs you'd get here and there and you grew a garden. That's what a hobby farmer was. They had a donkey and a you know pet pig and those were hobby farmers. <laughs> yeah. And so when we decided to start offering classes, it was again, just to kind of start changing the perspective and helping um, break some of those misconceptions on what you could do with your space and how you could, um, in an inexpensive and efficient way, raise some of your own food. So some of the classes that we've done so far, um, goat's milk soap has been one of our most popular classes. We actually don't raise goats, but we get our goat's milk from a local farm right down the road. And we love that they are a corn-free, soy-free, um, goat's milk and so they're getting the benefits of a good high quality goat's milk when we make our soap and um you know sounds like okay soap's just fun you just have a fun little soap there well i can't tell you the joy i get from washing my baby in a soap knowing that i made it i know exactly where the products came from i know exactly what ingredients are in it and it is it is clean and it's mm -hmm. got nutrition in it um same thing with our um beef tallow body lotion deodorant classes you know just it's almost like it just empowers people to realize that okay yeah you could go and buy a really great body lotion somewhere but do you actually feel 100 confident with every drop of ingredient that's in that because mm -hmm. unfortunately we're finding that you really can't you can scan it with a fancy bar or app and and see what the ingredients are but do you really know what all's in that? Um, so again, it's just more like empowerment. And now on the animal side of our classes, we've done um, rabbit raising classes, how to raise meat rabbits. Um, that's one of the things that we do here on our farm. And um, for meat rabbits, you know, people think it's difficult or they have just kind of this idea in their head that that sounds like a lot of work. It's really not, it's quite simple. Um, and the process of birth to butcher is quite quick. And so, you know, giving people the idea of how that works. Um, we did a chicken raising class from baby chicks. You know, you buy your baby chicks and what do you do now? You know, from here to there. And again, just um, busting myths. You know, the class that we had we, for our chick raising class was our most popular. We had 67, 67 people here, I think, on the day of our chick class. And I mean, the questions were just boom, 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 boom. All these questions. And they're all these questions that were like totally these, you know, myths that people come up with on the mm -hmm. internet when they google how to raise chicks or whatever and it was really great because it got those conversations going whether it was the small background farm or whether it was um you know the urban farm or the urban the the city folks that just wanted three hens five hens or whether it was we had one group here that they were really interested in doing pastured chickens and they wanted to know what would this take? How much does it cost? What did you do infrastructure? How did you build your coops? All of that. So um, 
it's, you know, it's, it's all things combined with empowerment, encouragement, education, people seeing it hands on. I mean, you can YouTube anything. You can learn how to do anything on YouTube, but getting your hands in the dirt, getting your hands right there and working with people side by side. Um, you know, our, our rabbit butchering class, for example, I mean, we had moms, I don't know if this is okay, hopefully. Yeah, please, yeah, dive, dive <laughs> we, had, yeah. Okay, we had moms with babies on their backs in their little baby carriers, butchering rabbits. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, when she's done, she's like, not only is this great because our kids are learning too. We had kids there, they're learning, they're understanding where their food comes from, but it was quick. And she was surprised with how clean it was and how efficient mm-hmm. it was and how, you know, right there, all of a sudden now there's dinner, you know? And it just was, it's empowering, I think, because as soon as they're done with something simple like that, that task that to us, we take advantage of because we think, oh, that's just a simple thing we do all the time. But to somebody who's never experienced that, and you take that, um, those questions, those worries, those concerns away from them, when you show them the simplicity of it, it just, it just blows their mind. They're just so excited about it. So the classes have been incredibly fun and, and very empowering to even me, you know, every time I do a class and people walk away, just feeling great about it. I'm like, this was awesome. (laughs) So I'm sure you realize like how far your knowledge has come to like the things that, yeah, you now do second nature that you remember like, oh yeah, I remember being nervous about that or not knowing how that worked. Absolutely. And you know, the goat's milk soap is a really good example of that. Um, I could not find anywhere local to learn how to make soap. And I had a good friend who was telling me she would eventually teach me, but she even kept saying, um, it's really difficult and it's got a lot of chemical components and you have to be really careful and this and that. And I'm just like nervous about Mm -hmm. learning how to make goat's milk soap, you know? And so finally, after multiple um, YouTube videos, lots of trial and error, I kind of made my own recipe that combined some of the best of what I'd learned. And I, this took me a course of like six months to perfect the soap and -hmm. then realized that it's not actually that scary if you know how to do it. And if you are confident with it. So a lot of the women that came to the goat's milk soap class, you know, they're like nervous. Oh, we have to work with lye. Oh, that's nerve wracking. That's scary. It's chemical, you know? And I'll say, no, you'll be fine. Trust me trust the process. You'll work it out. It'll all work out. And by the end, they're going, that was way easier than the internet made it sound. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, because it sounds so scary to try to work with something like that when you've never touched it in your life. Yeah. The the internet can be a good place or a bad place. You know, there's you're going to find the polar opposite of every opinion as like, especially for livestock and that kind of thing. There's the like backyardchickens.com, And I can't tell you how many times it's like, you know, should I, you know, paint down to, you know, when I first started reading, they're like, you, you have to use like a natural paint, like get milk paint. I'm just, I'm just going to put it out there. Milk paint sucks and it does not look good. And it was like, I basically painted the coop and then had to repaint it. And then other people were like, no, like don't put your chickens in there while the paint is drying, obviously. But like, once it cures, it's fine. You know, you, you can use like a regular outdoor paint. And so there's all sorts of school, like schools of thought and what you're 
what you're feeding them, like the, whether they are free range or not, or the level of protein in the food during the winter, all, all those different things. You'll, it's like yeah. the web MD of, of, uh, farming, but yes. for Valerie and Wilder, have y'all found that like what Elizabeth's doing is kind of the outlier? Like, do you find that other farmers um, and like particularly established farmers are like willing to share information and like show you the ropes of like, this is how we did it and, you know, get education? Or do you find that it's harder to get education and it's kind of like self-taught trial and error? I think for me, um, what Elizabeth is describing, and I've taken some of her classes too, it's it's really wonderful to learn from someone in person and ask those questions. Um, the internet is overwhelming, as you, know, you kind of alluded to, and a lot of people still do want that in-person education. There's, I think for me personally, there's that generation gap of, I don't have someone to learn from. I don't know how to find a farmer to call them, you know, and, and, um, get that kind of mentorship. So you turn to social media, but that's not where all of the, you know, generations of farmers that came before us are today. So mm -hmm. as a first generation farmer, trying to make those connections and um, rely, kind of go beyond the book has been really difficult. Um, but there are resources out there and making connections and meeting Elizabeth, uh, for example, on social media is, is one of the ways that we've been able to kind of get around that. Um, but a lot of it is for us paying for your education through experience. I think I've shared that with you before, Brittany. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a lot of trial and error um, and just being okay with that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It sounds wonderful. What, uh, Elizabeth is offering. I, I wish there was some, some groovy classes near me. Um, <laughs> I, I do, I guess I'd give a shout out to, to peaceful belly farm in Marsing. They do some pretty engaging activities, um, that have probably empowered some people I would imagine just from the themes that I see. And, um, you know, for me, I'm always, uh, trying to tap my father's um, wisdom and, and any any experience he has, and he's pretty forthcoming. And also, like I kind of have to get off my my. I'm pretty fundamentalist when it comes to inputs in your farm, and so sometimes I disregard my neighbors. Um, and they still do have a lot to offer, and. You know, it's just the other day, someone who's an arborist was here and telling my friend, you know, all that, like, you know, the four things you need to do through the summer so that you have good peaches. And I just don't do any of those things. Um, but that there's not, there's not, there's, it's not that there's not something to glean from there. And so I, uh, I try to be receptive of all, all the information and you never know who has it, like someone next door does know how to can they just don't like doing it anymore and haven't been inspired and but they'll teach you and so there's lots of community resources around us the generation's not entirely gone yet and i think for anybody starting out like um you know go to the conferences go to the meetups go to the farmers markets ask the questions and find a mentor like really find someone to be in your pocket and um, Peter Dill in Emmett at St. John's Organics has been my daring mentor. And that's been like, it's made all the difference. And um, him and I cannot talk for less than two hours, it seems. <laughs> so it's just like, it's just like super valuable that I have someone that I can call 
um, I can't see it. I can't go see it all the time. It's kind of far away, but I definitely have someone that has walked the water before me and they might not be in the state, you know, depending <laughs> on what you're, what you're up to, you know? So I think it's really important to find a mentor. Yeah, I think so too. And it's, it's, you know, for the average consumer, it's, um, it can be intimidating, even at the farmer's market, you know, you feel like the um, people that are there from their farms that they know so much, and you don't want to seem ignorant by asking questions, you know, ab about the products that they're carrying, or, um, you know, you, you don't want to be rude, like, why is this chicken so much more expensive than chicken in the grocery store? But I would encourage you to ask those questions, because if they're there, it means that they're really passionate about what they are doing. And um, they've likely dedicated a large portion of their life and time and money to it. And so, like, learn from them. There's probably a good reason for any question that you have why they do something the way that they do it. Um, but again, forewarning with that, I, once you know, it's hard to look um, back on that. You know, I've, I've talked about on here another book called Animal Vegetable Miracle that just talks about how most of our food is like how far it travels to before it gets to us, whether it's, um, you know, things that we could grow in our state, but are still largely imported. You know, I, I lived in Charleston, South Carolina for a long time, and I was always shocked when I would be in the grocery store and the majority of our seafood was not from Charleston. You know, we're, we're right there. We have shrimp docks. Why, why do we have shrimp from Indonesia? Um, so all these strange um, aspects. And so I, I just encourage you to, to look into it because it's kind of, you know, in my mindset, you can spend money on it now, or, or later, it, it will impact your health, what's in our food. And then, you know, you're supporting locally and your neighbor. And, you know, I've, I've made friends through it, which is wonderful. You know, you really get to know who your food is coming from. You're friends with your dairy farmer, you're friends with your, um, where you get your cattle or produce from, and you can learn and maybe try things yourself so that, you know, eventually and start small so that we don't lose those skills. You know, I'm, I'm shocked when we got chickens and, and no judgment to anyone, when we got chickens and they said, well, how are you going to have eggs without a rooster? And I'm like, we're, as a generation, we're starting to like lose the knowledge of, you know, how, how we get an egg, like that to grow carrots, like one seed equals one carrot and how to, you know, just simple, like pretty simple things that I don't want to see, you know, I want to make sure that like my kids have that that education and it's not usually something that's taught in school. So I really applaud all of you for sharing that knowledge and um, because it is your businesses too and your livelihood. And there's got to be that like aspect of like you're educating people that could potentially be your competition. You know, a lot of times um, when people are coming in, we've had this happen several times now, um, people are coming to our classes and I, I encourage consumers to come to our classes you know don't just think that you're coming for example we had um, a couple um, husband and wife come to our chicken class they had no interest in raising chickens but they wanted to know they wanted to see our farm they wanted to see what we do how we raise the chickens humanely what we feed them how they're raised because they are regular egg customers 
So, you know, just on the subject of learning, it doesn't have to be because you actually want to go grow your own food. It could be just because you want to know how your farmer is raising the food that you're purchasing from them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I know Valerie does little farm tours to have people come by. I highly encourage that because that was such an eye-opening thing for us when we first started. Um, we do beef. We also are diving into pastured pork and we also do lamb. And it was important for people to see, like when they purchased, you know, a lot of times people are like, well, I don't want to see the animal before I, before I consume it. I understand that to a degree but they sometimes just want to see a happy animal out in the pasture and then they go and buy something and they know, okay, that happy animal will eventually also be something that I'm going to consume. And so it just, again, it doesn't have to be because you want to learn how to do this yourself. It might just be because you actually want to have a little more knowledge behind where your food's coming from so that you can support your local farmers that way. And um, we are, so passionate about that because I think that's where that happens where you like you said you know do you have to have a rooster to have eggs you know why is that a thing (laughs) why is that a misconception (laughs) yeah well because people have gotten so far away from the farm you know they don't and and um adults and we have nothing against kids coming to learn we want kids to learn because they're the first they're the next um the next generation but adults are the ones that need to also be at the farms to learn where this food is coming from and what it's like and how these animals are being treated because there is, that helps close the gap mm-hmm. for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah and sure. I think you touched on something really important too is that, that generational knowledge and just keeping it um, local because so much of our food is consolidated of where it's produced that we don't really have to ever know these things anymore in society. Going back to that, you know, click the button, add to cart kind of thing. And for, for me, I grew up in a rural area. We had bring your tractor to school day, um, but I never knew anyone that had a tractor and we didn't have eggs in our backyard. And um, I could hear the cows mooing, but I didn't know that you could buy a beef share until we started raising our own cattle and and realizing that you could buy direct from your farmer and kind of cut out that that middleman um, with the grocery store and and really know a lot more about your food. So I think I see a lot of people, we need a lot of people that come to our farm that are really interested in that and want to know more. And that's really exciting. Um, I think the other thing that's interesting is Elizabeth, you sharing, you know, kind of what your bottom line looks like for for your eggs, even though it feels like a high price, a lot of farmers today work off the farm. Um, I think USDA did a a survey in 2019 that said it's up to 96% of farmers now have off farm income that they rely on. In the 70s, it was 37%. So we see that, that huge consolidation. We see that reliance of having to uh, have your income happen off of the farm, but we still need farms. We still need our local farms to, to continue to produce and to share that, that knowledge of how to raise our own food. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, somebody asked me at one point when we did that, well, then why do you sell eggs? And I said, because we're passionate about providing a quality product to people. It, it isn't about making money. Um, and to a degree, that's kind of sad because like you said, those, those statistics tell you right there, we can't make money as farmers at that level, 
Um, but why do we do it? We do it because we know that there's, uh, there, there's lives at stake, if you will. I mean, it, that might sound extreme, but there really is, you know, there's, we have so many customers that buy our eggs specifically because we don't feed corn or soy and uh, we don't spray. So, you know, we're not considered organic because we haven't gone through those hoops yet. Um, and we may never, but the fact that we can say that our animals are, um, you know, being fed correctly is a big deal. So. Yeah. And there's all the, the marketing too, of, you know, um, all natural cage-free pasture raised, like happy farm, like all these things that are printed on a box that people are like, Oh no, I, I bought happy farm eggs. Like that's not a thing that's not regulated, you know, it's, um, or, or that cage-free means there's simply four sides and not a lid, you know, right. like they can still be packed in there or they're all in a room, you know, it doesn't, unfortunately for the consumer, unless you're really diving into it and doing your research, you might think that you're doing the right thing. And then, you know, you're being swindled by marketing and they're very good. You know, marketing is, you know, makes a ton of money. A lot of people, you know, that's their whole career is to get you to believe one thing. But the only way to really know how your food is raised and what's going into it is to visit the farm. And when you lay eyes on it, at least for me, I can speak personally. Um, I am purchasing a beef share from Valerie and Alex, and I have seen the cow that's going to be part of our, our beef share. And when I look at the cow, very happy. And I'm like, well, at least that cow is living out like it's best days, happy in the sunshine with tons of space to roam, like food to graze on. And it's, it's happy. I, I being more in, in Idaho now, and we, we drive around uh, to other States a lot where you, you pass a lot of huge cattle farms where they are packed in. And so when you, you see the the difference between them, it's, it's a no brainer, but it, it is hard and it takes work on your side as the consumer to do your research, read your labels. Um, you know, I'm, I'm willing to bet if you pick up most general packages of ground beef in the grocery store, they're going to say, um, made in the U S it's, it's not even going to tell you uh, the state because the meat's coming from multiple States and going to a processing plant. So, um, read those labels and, and dive into it that way. Um, and then I'd love for each of you to share where listeners can follow your farms and find out information about, um, the classes that you guys have going on. And, you know, if, if they're local to us, you know, come to visit your farms, but just continue to be educated about all the different areas that y'all, um, serve in, in terms of farming and agriculture. Right now, uh, social media is the best place to get a hold of us. Uh, we are currently, working on um, putting together a website, but we have not gotten that uh, finalized yet. So um, Windy Sage Farms, make sure there's an S on the end, just FYI, um, that's a, a new struggle. Uh, so make sure there's an S on the end of Windy Sage Farms, all one word, and that will be Instagram and Facebook. We are also on YouTube and we're gonna be starting to offer some of our classes on YouTube um, via subscription, so keep an eye out for that. For Vista Farms, uh, we are most active on Instagram. So that is Vista Farms Idaho, farms with an S as well. And uh, we're also on Facebook and 
I have been keeping this a secret. I haven't announced it yet, but we do have a website, which is vistafarmsidaho.com as well. <laughs> um, I I don't know. I we have to. I guess this is where I'm launching that or or giving that announcement. Honored. So, <laughs> thanks, Brittany. You're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. No problem. Yeah, my farm, the micro dairy, is Wild Spaces Farm, uh, wildspacesfarm.com. That's the handle on Instagram and Facebook as well. And we do, you know, 24-7 door open, open door policy. If you want to come see the farm, come see the animals and talk to me. Um, odds are I'm around because uh, someone's got to do the milking. <laughs> and so you're all, uh, people are always welcome to come to the farm. My products are only available direct. Um, well, I do have one retail setting, but uh, the Boise Farmer's Market 1500 Shoreline Drive, 9 a.m. on Saturday morning until 1 p.m. And Forest Service Park in Ketchum, Idaho at the Wood River Farmer's Market, uh, noon to 4 p.m. on Wednesdays. And I'm also located at uh, Six Creeks Mercantile, which is a new store here in Glens Ferry, and Nourish Me uh, in Ketchum, Idaho. And my father's farm, kingscrownorganics.com. Yeah, kingscrownorganics.com. And there, uh, you can follow them on Instagram as well. So, well, I'm definitely going to take you up on a, a farm visit and I will come visit your happy cows that are real happy cows. Um, but listeners, I'll have all those handles linked in the show notes for you so that you can find those easily. And thank you all so much for taking time out of your days and away from your animals to come and talk to us and provide some education today. Thank you for the thank opportunity. For yeah, and thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Untraditionally Traditional. If you enjoy the podcast, please share it with those special people who would love it too and write a review. For more tips and photos of my home and garden, follow Untraditionally Traditional Pod on Instagram. Until next week, let's continue to make our homes places of joy and service to ourselves and those we share them with.